Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss the fallout from last week's local elections and where it leaves the Tories ahead of next year's general is my colleague, Caitlin Dotty. And I'm also delighted to say we have James Sunderland, Conservative MP for Bracknell, as well as Henry Hill, Deputy Editor of the Conservative Home website. So we're a week on from, from last week's local elections. We know the, the, the kind of the top line figure, which is the Conservatives lost a thousand uh, seats. James, firstly, kind of how do you see it a week on? Is it kind of a, a midterm blip? Is it people, you know, given the Tories are kicking, is it people leaving you or going to Labour? How do, how do you kind of see it a week on? Well, the local elections uh, in Bracknell last week, they were very disappointing, the results, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. What's interesting here, you've got one of the best-run councils in the country. By any metric, his performance is superb. 40 or 40 schools in the constituency are Ofsted, good or outstanding. We've got full employment. Lowest 10% rate of council tax in the country for any unitary authority. Um, so the offer locally is really, really good. We're also solvent. We're free of unmanaged debt. And um, if you look at neighbouring councils in Berkshire, how they've gone, Bracknell is the beacon of hope. So, uh, why, so why did it go to Labour for the first time in 25 years then? Well, it's, uh, it's a perfect storm. I think you had a number of uh, councillors that have been there for a long time. I think that uh, new ideas and vision and energy is now required. We didn't work it perhaps as much as we could have done, a bit of complacency perhaps. The national picture, I think, also certainly played a part in yeah. it. But the soft Conservative vote didn't turn up. And uh, what we have to do now locally and nationally is to get back to core Conservative principles. And we need to convince people again why they need to vote for the Conservatives. Because yeah. I'm afraid the alternative right now, the thought of a Labour government, fills me with complete horror. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you, you know, your seat yourself is probably not at risk, really, given the majority and stuff. But there are other areas like Swindon, for example, whose local council went to Labour. And their, their MPs, Robert Buckland, is definitely under threat. Justin Tomlinson, he's spoken out about this week, saying that you know, the Tories need to, to plot a different course. Otherwise, seats like his will follow the local council and go to, go to Labour. What do you kind of make of that? I think that's fair, but I think we're all at risk. And I think if you go into this election thinking that your seat is safe, I think that's a big mistake. You know, for me, it's about serving Bracknell. And uh, not a single person in Bracknell will tell you that I'm not there all of the time because I am. We respond to all casework. Uh, we are really working hard for Bracknell. And mm. I've met ministers continually for three and a half years to get a better deal. And if you look at my record on Hansard or in the chamber, I'm working hard for Bracknell. Yeah. But what I would tell you is that we need to tell people what we're doing. Um, right. And I think the Conservatives now need to get a lot better at telling people what it is they're doing for them. We've got a whole series of fantastic bills going through at the moment. You know, Rishi's five pledges are absolutely right. Um, he will deliver on those. And I'm absolutely clear that following the macro events that we've seen, particularly the pandemic and the Ukraine invasion, uh, and the effect of Brexit, if I'm being honest, I think that uh, the offer will get better and better all of the time. Mm. And, and what we can't afford to do is, is unseat that good work that's being done. Yeah, Henry, just bringing you in on this, James is talking about whether it's actually maybe the messaging on, on the stuff is, is not working. Is it, the, is it the messaging or is it perhaps the strategy itself? Do you think that the Conservatives are plotting the right course under Rishi Sunak? Do they need more time or is it, or is it time for a change of tack potentially after what happened last week? Well, I mean, the question with the change of tack is to what? Yeah. The, yeah Rishi Sunak's five pledges, the reason that, you know, he's, one of the reasons he's drawn them up is that with the possible exception of small boats, they're relatively deliverable. Mm. And when you're, you've only got about 18 months left until you have to go to the polls, that's important because you want to be able to go in saying that you have hit these targets. And, and in that sense, the strategy is perfectly sensible. Where it runs into difficulty is that it's not entirely obvious that, A, the public necessarily understands all of these pledges. You know, you can see polling which shows that 
a, a decent minority of people in some cases think that inflation falling means falling prices, which is not the same thing at all. But two, just the extent to which these goals really cut through to people who, you know, in local government, we're dealing often with, with services that are struggling. Local authority budgets are stretched. Many local government voters in local elections perhaps don't realize that local councils have been given responsibility for social care, basically in an effort to get it off the treasury's books. And that means that an awful lot of the local taxes that people think should be spent on, you know, civic projects, the high street bin collections and so on, are actually all getting sucked away into this ruinously expensive national commitment. But the other challenge is, what's Rishi Sunak's grand vision? You know, on, on conservative, conservative Home interviewed, our editor interviewed Rishi Sunak the other week, and the first question that, that Paul Goodman asked him was, why are you in politics? What's your vision? And Rishi Sunak just pivoted to these five goals. And, you know, the public's priorities are important, but what's the narrative? If you handed Rishi Sunak a magic wand, what would Britain look like? I cover the Conservative Party professionally for a living, and I couldn't really tell you, and therefore I don't think that the public do. And in fairness to Rishi, how would he possibly deliver this? You know, ultimately, he, he came to the leadership in the weakest position, I think, of any Conservative leader, at least in government in modern times. He doesn't really have an active mandate. MPs don't think of themselves as having sort of dipped their hands in the blood and committed to Rishiism, whatever that is. Most of the pledges he made in the first contest that he lost against Liz Truss, he actually jettisoned by the second one. So I think he does need to set out a coherent and optimistic vision for why the country should vote Conservative in 2024. Mm. The difficulty is getting any agreement on what that is. Yeah, yeah. Caitlin, bringing on that, the five pledges though that he has set out, some of them aren't really in his gift, things like inflation and, and debt and all that kind of stuff. It does feel as though it's, some of them are quite hard to deliver and, and waiting lists are going up. The backlog is still going up. It's, it's in a sense, do you think that the, the local elections, the results there were necessarily a, a kickback against those five pledges? Or do you think people don't really understand those five pledges either, really? I'm going to sort of split that question in half. Okay. Because the first point that you made about the pledges not necessarily completely being in the Prime Minister's gift, I think is true. And perhaps the chickens came home to roost a little bit on that. I think I might be mixing my metaphors there. A few weeks ago, when we saw that inflation, the first month we expected inflation to start to fall, yeah. actually it stayed about as high yeah, as we were expecting. Stubbornly in double digits, Suddenly in double digits. And that was sort of maybe the first hint that, oh, you know, maybe inflation isn't going to fall as quickly as we had expected. And uh, the pledge is to halve it within a year. And that is starting to feel a little bit, you know, time is ticking, whether that's going to be possible. Whether the response last week was a kickback to these five pledges, I would say that might possibly be a stretch because as Henry mentioned there, I'm not quite sure of the level of awareness that the public has of of these specific five pledges. I mean, sure, they all relate to things that definitely matter to the public. NHS waiting lists matter to the public. The cost of your supermarket shop yeah. matter to the public. But if you stopped the random average Joe in the street and asked them what are the five things that Rishi Sunak has promised to do, I'm not sure how many people would be able to tell you. But can they tell that they still have to wait for for an NHS appointment? Yes. Can they tell that their supermarket basket is getting more expensive every week? Yes, they can. Do they come up, those five pledges come up on the doorstep in Bracknell, James? Yeah, they do. They come up quite a lot, actually. And um, what are we going to do? Well, the first thing is we're going to reduce inflation. We know that is going to happen. 
which will benefit everyone. That's the best tax cut ever. Yeah. We're going to deal with the small boats. I know that to be the case because I work in the Home Office and the Home Secretary is working really hard to put a bill through. In fact, it went through the Commons last week and it's going through the Lords right now. So we know that's going to happen. We've also got to grow the economy. We're going to do that through a variety of ways, through investment, through um, a good tax regime but balanced against the fact that we've also got to pay our bills. And uh, we are currently in the red. We know that. Um, we've got to pay back the, the generous support that we gave the British people during the pandemic. Food on the table for every single person in the UK, with a few exceptions. So it's really important that we, um, we are the party of responsible government. And that means not making promises that we can't fulfil mm. and not writing cheques that we can't cash. For us right now to make fiscal promises, to win the election perhaps, that we can't then deliver is completely wrong. Labour right now are offering billions and billions of pounds of unfunded promises. How are they going to fund it? It's irresponsible in my view and what British people want is honesty, which they get from me. And what they also want is they want to know the truth. They want to know what the Prime Minister is going to deliver for them. Is, is that Sunakism then? Or are we talking about a lack of kind of overarching vision? Is, is that the vision itself? Just like, just simple sort of deliverability? Or do you think there needs to be more than that? We had Ben Bradley on the podcast a couple of weeks ago saying that that's really good to begin with. You stabilise where the party was last year. But do you, need to, do you need more? Do you need to inspire people to vote Tory last time to go back to the ballot box and vote for him another time? Look, let me tell you this. I'll be quite candid with you. I'm a military man, so I tend to say things as it is. I didn't back Rishi yeah. for the election campaign internally uh, until much later on. And the reason for that was simple. I didn't know him. I hadn't met him. So I backed Penny Mordaunt because I knew her. Uh, and she's excellent. Since Rishi Sunak became the Prime Minister, I backed him at the second go. I think the world of him. And I'll tell you why. Because he's calm, he's cautious, he's decent. Interpersonally, he's kind. He's interested. He's easy to talk to, easy to get on with. He's a man of the people. And what I would say to you is that this is a guy who's reading his brief. He's in the detail. He's highly competent. And above all, he's very, very clever. And this is a guy who's caught all of the big calls right since becoming the Prime Minister. He's leading from the front. And don't judge a man by anything other than what he delivers. Do you think the public think he's a man of the people? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, originally, Labour attacked him for the fact that he was wealthy. Well, here's a funny thing. You're not in politics for the money. <laughs> and he doesn't need to be in politics for the money. He's doing this because he believes in it. Yeah. He's doing this because he cares. He's doing this because he wants to give back, as I do. And you asked me earlier, Ella, why I'm in politics. Well, I've had a great time in the military, been all over the world, served some great people. I've got a lot out of it given a lot back too but for me now this is about giving something back to the people in Bracknell mm. and this is about giving something back to those people that elected me and that's what I'm doing right now mm. and I'm going to make damn sure that as a conservative we do not let socialism win. <laughs> Henry just bring you in on that what do you think? I think the problem with trying to run on a narrow competence basis is that it does rather depend on the public thinking that the government is actually delivering and managing state services well yeah. and that is increasingly you know not the case i genuinely think with things like nhs strikes and so on there is a danger of the tories suffering what is effectively a reverse winter of discontent right because it, it doesn't matter even if the prime minister's personal ratings are good you know john major's personal ratings were good if the public decide that after an extended period in office, the state core functions of the state are just not working and they're feeling poorer, then they will 
not vote for that government. So what the government really needs to do is, if it wants to do this, is it needs to marry this with high profile sort of actual wins and interventions. And the problem is they don't have a lot of time to do that. And they have, more dangerously still, had a lot of time in office. So the Tories have actually managed this quite remarkable kind of Doctor Who-like political regeneration where they changed prime minister and and managed to get a, a fresh look from the electorate. But there is only so many times you can do that. And the record of the Conservative government is going to be held up to scrutiny. So competence, yes, competence is good. No one wants to vote for an incompetent government, but competence sort of is necessary, but not sufficient. So Keir Starmer is not Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think anybody thinks that he that, that the state would immediately catch fire if Starmer entered number 10. So the Tories need to do better than that. And it is currently difficult for them, partly through their own failings and partly because of the difficulties of the pandemic and everything else, to do that. Mm. Caitlin, we'll just pivot slightly towards one of the kind of the things that's happened post the local elections. Housing has been a big, a big thing. There's been lots of debate, uh, as you can imagine, within the Conservative Party. It, and a lot of people are saying, is it too many houses? The reason they lost loads of council seats? Some people are saying it's too few houses. They lost too many, they lost council seats. You know, can you just talk us through that kind of that row? We were reporting on it for Politics Home this week. This debate's been bubbling under for a little while. I mean, I was doing some reporting at the other side of Christmas that was talking about, you know, are the Conservatives going to start focusing on the issues that matter the most to people under 40, you know, childcare and housing. We've already seen a lot earlier this year on childcare. And now housing is the issue that is really, really coming to the fore. Um, As we reported earlier this week, our colleague Tom Scotson, there has been some suggestion from some Conservative figures that, you know, part of the reason some Conservative councils were lost during the local elections is the pressure and, you know, the targets to be building houses in certain areas, building houses within a year, within two years, within three years, growing the size of these towns and these communities. But then on the other side, we've got some fairly heavy conservative figures suggesting the opposite. I mean, in the last couple of days, we've had interventions from uh, Charles Walker um, on Conservative Home, and we've also had Brandon Lewis earlier this morning in The Times. Um, And there were some really interesting comments from Brandon Lewis earlier this morning. One of the phrases that I've pulled out is he said, I will simply say that stopping house building is not the answer to our electoral challenges. It's basically coming back to this argument of how do the conservatives get people back on side and a growing chunk I would say of the party now seem to be voicing their opinion that the way to get people back on side is to ensure that younger people have that security of owning a home which um, you know due to the economic climate at the moment and a number of factors is really quite out of reach for a significant portion of the younger population. James on where do you stand are you on the, the too few houses or the not enough houses side of things? I've done lots of thinking about this over the last three and a half years. And uh, to start with the facts, uh, I mean, the Conservative councils in the main are building houses. We've met the local plan in Bracknell and Wokingham every year since about 2010. We're building houses. Some don't like it locally, the NIMBYs. Uh, I can understand why. And I'm no fan of house building at all in the Greenbelt. Um, so I've been quite outspoken about that. Labour councils are not building houses anywhere. They're not in London. So for Labour Party to say they're the party of home ownership and house building, complete and utter nonsense because the facts speak otherwise. But what do we need to do? Well, I think we need to build more houses. I think also, having gone online recently to to try and look at what you can get locally if you're renting or buying, it's uh, it, it's pretty horrific. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so I'm afraid. My thoughts are firming up all of the time that we absolutely have to build more houses, but has to be in the right place. Mm. So, you know, we're a small country, actually. You know, the population has increased by 8 million since 2001 or thereabouts. So which way do you want it? 
You know, open borders, more coming across as Labour want. And it's not about immigration per se, but if you grow the population, you need to build more houses to accommodate the population. And by the same token, waiting lists for GP surgeries. You can throw all the money, if you like, at the NHS. You know, £180 billion at the moment. It's the biggest deal ever by far for the NHS. It's not about the money. So ultimately, you've got to make sure that, uh, that the infrastructure and housing and facilities keep pace with the growing population. Mm -hmm. We're getting older. We're, we're splitting up um, you know, in terms of marriages and divorce, people living on their own more. So we've got to build more houses now. I'm afraid that the way we do that is by going up, sadly, not necessarily out. Mm. Henry, you bring you in on this. I know it's a, a, a passion project of yours about housing. Yeah, so I mean, so there are a few things to say about how, I mean, there are a lot of things to say about housing. <laughs> We've not got enough not time that. for everything that you want to not say about housing. Podcast. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So the first thing is that building houses in the right place, like who does, what, what determines what the right place is? Because frankly, the right place for most of me, for meeting most of this country's housing shortage is in either London or in the Southeast in the seats of conservative MPs. And the one thing that you will always find from most conservative MPs is that they they agree on housing in the abstract, but when they say housing in the right place, what they mean is somewhere else. How far they take that reasoning depends on the MP. You know, you've got uh, you know, Bob Seeley, for example, argues that actually where we really need all this housing is in cities in the north that have suffered population decline, which is an interesting argument. But the truth is that the the worst, most overheated, overstretched housing markets are in London in the southeast, and that is where political resistance to building is strongest. The Tories could, if they'd been had more strategic foresight, have kind of hived London off and done something really bold in London. But instead, they allowed Therese Villas, Ian Duncan Smith, and a handful of other M uh, Tory MPs with London marginals to to stop them doing that. Either the problem with the, with with immigration is that you know immigration is is a big national concern, but it's a it's a brute fact that given our aging population you need working age people from somewhere now there are ways in which you could reduce demand for immigration the government could have sort of worked and legislated to effectively force british companies to train and invest in training british workers rather than importing skills from overseas they could have built vocational pathways created entitlements to lifelong learning and so on and they haven't done that the government could also taking a slightly longer view have made it easier and more and more cost effective for for working families to have children. You know, if you think back to the row over the two child limit for welfare, one of the arguments for that policy was that it was unfair that working families had to make really difficult economic decisions about how many children they could afford and when they could afford them, and families on welfare did not. But it's a sign of how completely governed by short-term treasury thinking government strategy has been that the way they chose to resolve that was by restricting welfare rather than reforming tax and child credits and other incentives to try and make it easier for working age British citizens to have the children they want to have. Now, we don't see, and I think this is the reason the government keeps failing to hit this immigration target that it keeps setting itself, we don't see any coherent joined up strategy or policy for reducing short, medium or long-term demand for immigration. And because all of those pensions and social care bills are going to have to be paid, until that happens, we will need to keep having high immigration. And we don't even hear that conversation in too much of the Conservative Party at the moment. Mm. Just before we move off housing, so you know, housing is not part of Rishi Sunak's five pledges. Would you like to see a sixth pledge added to that, which is, you know, after Stop the Boats, build more houses, James? Is that the kind of, you know, is that the message that could help win an election? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have to find the balance between building on Greenbelt, and nobody wants that. 
but also building more houses. Yeah. Um, so this is a case, I think, of building in the right locations. You know, NIMBYism, I'm afraid, is, is very strong in most of our constituencies, hence why a lot of the Conservative MPs, you know, sort of rejected the, the Litchfield table and the proposals that came through when Robert Jemrick was Member of State, uh, yeah. Secretary of State. So I, I think it's about finding a way through the challenge without losing the core Conservative vote. But ultimately, you know, if you own your own property, then that's a great source of pride mm. and very important for the person who owns their own property. Uh, <laughs> Are you kind of codedly saying that you're more likely to vote Conservative if you, if you own your own property? Well, I'm learning my job as I go along. <laughs> um, I think that is fair. The Conservative Party stands for opportunity. Yeah, It's aspirational. It's about putting more money in people's pockets, low tax. What do I stand for? Strong defence, law and order, jobs, education, strong economy, global Britain. These are the core conservative principles that true conservatives like me believe in. And we've got to get back to that. And I think if we get back to that, it'd be very easy to convince the electorate that, that actually we are the party that means business. We are the party of fiscal pragmatism. But that opportunity to your own home needs to, be, needs to be there. Caitlin, just one of the rows that's sort of broken out, obviously this stuff around the, the bonfire of, of EU laws is now looking more like a sort of a small campfire rather than a, a large bonfire at the moment. It's only uh, Kemi Badnock, the Trade Secretary, said it was more likely to be sort of like um, 600 laws by the end of this year rather than the sort of several thousand you can just explain kind of the the, the fight there and and i think you know when when richard took over there was a lot of talk about how the party was going to be ungovernable the concern you know there's too many factions except there have been multiple these elections all that kind of stuff and he he did manage to draw them together but i wonder if now post-local election if those kind of fault lines within the, the conservative party are starting to break open again i think one of the interesting things at the moment is that don't get me wrong there do seem to be a number of rows brewing at the moment but there isn't one single one that looks set to absolutely explode. Hmm. You're right, we've got EU retain law, which is the legislation that was designed um, to get EU law off the statute books in the UK by the end of this year. That sunset clause has now been dropped, we heard yesterday. At the same time, as we mentioned earlier, we've got the uh, illegal migration bill going through. That's setting up a bit of a row, it seems, uh, between the Commons and the Lords. The Lords look set to make some changes to that. And then at the same time, we've got this housing row um, that we mentioned earlier maybe a row is a little bit too strong to, uh, mm. to call that at the moment but you know we've got uh, different factions of the conservative party voicing you know fairly polarizing opinions on that matter oh god this is such a, a sitting on the fence answer i think it's probably a case of see where we go from here yeah. see where the politics takes us yeah. I, I would suggest that perhaps any of these three has the potential to not necessarily become a blazing row but to become more developed and to be something that the conservatives are discussing over and over and over and we'll see where we go from here but there are certainly a number of fault lines starting to emerge again. Are you, are you still a, a nest of singing birds in in in, uh, in Parliament, James? Well, I was just smiling to myself because I was accused in the Sunday Times this weekend of cancelling myself <laughs> and sitting on the fence. <laughs> Those who know me will tell you that actually um, there is nothing on the fence about me. There at are no all. splinters in your um, arms, certainly not. And uh, I'm forthright on most issues. And what we have to do basically is to deliver more housing for the British people, for young people in particular. Uh, I know we need to do that, and uh, there's work to do. You've got some colleagues that need convincing, though, right? Well, they're not wrong either, yeah. and it's about finding the way through. Okay, mm. So this is not about building houses on what's left of our leisure facilities, golf courses, people's back gardens. It's not about you know felling the last remaining set of woods in the constituency. I mean, Bratnell is a very urban constituency. I'm absolutely, totally opposed to any more building in Bratnell because, actually... We've got 
a lot of housing there already, but what I meant by that is in the wrong places. So, so we need more housing in Bracknell, but we can't afford to build it on the golf courses in people's back gardens. We can't afford to build it in our leisure places. The quality of life in Bracknell right now is really, really good. And what we can't afford to do is to erode that quality of life just to build more housing. So it's about building more housing in the right areas. Henry, what do you make of that? This again is part of the challenge of the planning system is it's, it's easy to identify areas we don't want housing. But if we, if we toss all of those up, that does tend to add up to everywhere. It's just that in different groups say different bits. Like near me, there is currently a campaign called Keep Kensal Green, which is a ferocious attempt to protect the the area's last brownfield site, which is an unlovely industrial estate, which is sandwiched between a railway line and a cemetery. But to be slightly, le- slightly less specific, there is a real pressure. There is real pressure on urban development with things like garden grabbing, which when I was working in parliament was a big concern for, for one of the MPs that I for the MP that I worked for. But the problem with that is if you stop towns expanding, which is what the Greenbelt is designed to do, if you stop towns expanding, then the only place that you can put housing is inside the areas that are already zoned for development. And that does create huge pressure on urban green space that people can actually visit. It creates pressure on gardens and lot sizes. It creates pressure on public parks and other green spaces. So the solution to that is to allow towns to expand, to find some farmers' fields next to Bracknell and build a new bit of Bracknell on them. But the problem is that very often to do that, what you have to do is build on our sacred greenbelt. So the government needs to be prepared to have that fight. It has to say, look, the greenbelt has actually expanded enormously since it was first introduced. If you're not prepared to build on greenbelt land, there's only so much brownfield sites available. Many of those are very expensive to develop. Beyond that, you do end up with gardens, public green spaces and other areas. But if you don't want building in those areas, you have to be prepared to have the fight about the Greenbelt. Yeah, that's correct. I think we do need more housing in Bracknell. We know that. More housing in Wokingham as well. We need more housing everywhere. But the point I was making is quite a clear one. What we can't afford to do is build on those leisure facilities, those parks, those Mm. golf courses, the woodland where you walk your dog in the morning. That land is sacred. And and we have to make sure that we protect that, that leisure and that space that people crave. So we should be building on brownfield sites, perhaps looking to extend boundaries if we need to. But this is not easy. No. Uh, well, look, before we descend into a full sort of housing podcast, let's, let's, go, let's go back to the... Uh, and, and Caitlin, obviously, part of it, I suppose, is that... So the Tories had expectation management was they would lose up to a thousand seats and then they end up sort of dipping below that. And it's sort of been spun as, oh, it's not as good a result for Labour as it could have been. But I mean, it, it surely is a very good result for Labour, right? And, and I suppose it's now, how do they turn that into a winning position for them and conversely for the Tories, what strategy do they pursue? I mean, it's interesting from one of those five pledges, there's five pledges that we wish the next got, levelling up is not part of that. There's a, there's a piece in The Sun today, talking about 10 MPs in Midlands saying that levelling up seems to be falling down the pecking order. Is that something that you think that, that Labour can step into? Is that something that Conservatives need to focus on again if they're to, to rebuild that strategy from 2019? Personally, I don't think anybody could say that it was last Thursday was a bad result for Labour or the Liberal Democrats. I think both Labour and the Liberal Democrats will have come away from that very, very happy with themselves. Looking ahead as to how that presents itself on a general election... I think you can't discount the fact that people's voting patterns and voting intentions tend to be different at a general election than they are in local elections. We have seen the Liberal Democrats win a number of former Conservative seats over the last couple of years at by-elections. But whether that swathe of support that we saw for the Lib Dems at the locals translates into Lib Dem support at a general election remains to be seen. What 
does look to be certain is that whether people were moving towards Labour or moving towards Liberal Democrats, they were moving away from the Conservative Party in a number of areas that the Conservative Party have historically done very well in and would have considered safe. When it comes to Labour filling that gap on levelling up, you're right, we have seen a story today in the sun, a number of MPs across the Midlands, uh, angry over, you know, levelling up and feeling that want to see more action on this by the summer. This has been a bit of a running story over the last three or four years, probably since general election in 2019. Since levelling up was invented. invented. Ultimately, levelling up is quite hard to quantify. Mm. I mean, you've got the big projects, you've got your HS2, your Northern Powerhouse Rail, things like that. But then... Is, does levelling up count as improving a town square? Does it count as, you know, fixing the roads or building a new cycle lane? It's where things sit on that scale and ultimately how that is received in the community where the, in quote marks, levelling up project is mm. is completed. Labour have their shadow levelling up secretary, Lisa Nandy. She stands opposite Michael Gove at the moment. Uh, levelling up is clearly um, a complete passion project for Michael Gove. But I don't think... If Labour were to enter government or during these months we now have building up to the general election, personally, I don't think levelling up will get any easier to quantify. (laughs) And that is probably the thing that both parties are going to have to tackle in the preceding months. It's people clearly have a desire for their community to get better. Yeah. How will they make sure that projects are being done or promised that people will think will make their community better? And that is ultimately the question at the heart of it. Yeah, Henry, what kind of role do you think levelling up might play both in Conservative and Labour strategies going forward now after the the locals? I mean, the problem with levelling up is that it was never more than a slogan. It might have developed into more than a slogan, but Boris Johnson, who, despite his many, many, many shortcomings as a governor, was an excellent politician and and, and had good instincts as a campaigner. I think he recognised that there was a gap for parts of the UK which had been let down by successive governments of all parties but which had traditionally offered unstinting support to Labour and that there was a space where the Conservatives could make them an offer. And he did, and we got that remarkable 2019 result. But there was never any kind of clear, on the, at least on the part of Boris Johnson, any clear kind of analysis of why that was or how to fix it. And so in the end, basically all that happened is every single person who sponsored a stall at Conservative Party conference said that whatever it is that they were there to talk about was actually critical to levelling up. And in government, levelling up kind of devolved into a series of pots of cash for which MPs could bid to do worthwhile but relatively small projects. Again, you run into the problem of we're not that far from a general election, but if the government was serious about levelling up, I mean, you'd invest in local transport infrastructure in the north of England, you would not be pairing off uh, parts of HS2 that service northern cities, and you'd be making those kind of big structural investments which show that, well, yep, you can't deliver everything right away, but you are laying the foundations through which the north of England can grow itself out of the north-south divide. Because ultimately, you know, successive governments have tried to do it by just plonking bits of government places and handing out money, and that will never work. But the government hasn't done that, and there's no sign that the government will do that. And the Treasury would shout their heads off because the Treasury, you know, thinks like George Osborne, who who argued that basically many uh, transport and infrastructure investments outside the southeast were bad value for money. On that then, I mean, the strategy, the, the Sunak clearly wants to keep together the 2019 electoral coalition in terms of winning those seats, re, you know, re, keeping those seats they won in the, in the Midlands and the North. But, you know, without 
Boris, Brexit or Corbyn on the ballot paper as they were last time. Do you think that that's still a viable electoral coalition that he can keep together? Or is he, is he going you know, to lose those seats and also lose seats in the South by pursuing a kind of a, a you know, a, a top heavy strategy? I mean, my hunch would be that the government, if it go, if the next election goes badly, the government will lose seats in the South because the realignment is real and it will lose seats in the North because it's doing badly. I yeah. think the realignment, the talk of the death of the realignment is wildly overblown. I think the future of the Conservative Party does increasingly lie through those Midlands and Northern marginals. But yeah, that particular coalition in 2019 was welded together by Boris Johnson's particularly abilities as a campaigner and by the exigencies of Brexit. It would have been difficult to come up with a policy program that held them all together the government has not really even tried. Mm. James, and is it just too tough a job to try and you know sort of claw things back? Has the boat been taking on water for too long, or you know is it a case of damage limitations, or do you think that with a you know, new captain at the helm, you'll be able to sort of steer it into to calmer waters? I know you're in the army, but that's a lot of navy metaphors. I'm sorry, but indeed, I liked it. <laughs> My instinct here is that Rishi Sunak will continue to build a lot of confidence with the British people because he's clever and he's good. I think the polls will close between now and the next election. I think the Conservatives will uh, catch Labour up. And I think that fiscal pragmatism is what will see us through. What do I mean by that? You know, promising the earth is not responsible politics. We all want more of everything. We haven't got enough money to go round. So it's how you spend that money that really matters. So I fear for higher spending and higher taxes under Labour I fear for promises that won't be delivered. And my clear message to the British people is this is about trust, this is about responsibility, and this is about the Conservative government delivering on what we've said we're going to deliver. Mm. So I think it'll be a bit of a, a knife fight in a phone box as we get there. And again, I'm clear in my mind that we will play responsible politics. You know, we're not going to go after the man or the woman. We're not going to play the uh, rugby player, we're going to play the ball. And I think this is about decency, it's about respect, it's about not stoking up vitriol and hatred on social media, what I'm seeing locally. This is about decency, fairness and winning on policies. Mm. Caitlin, obviously, uh, we talked about before about you know whether Labour did well enough. There's lots of comparisons with, with Blair, but you know, Keir Starmer doesn't need to be Tony Blair to become the next Prime Minister of this country. You know, uh, My favourite quote is that, you know, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Do you think that... Essentially, that those voters who draw away from the Tories will be drawn towards Labour enough, essentially, and, and can the Tories draw things back, essentially? You're right. Keir Starmer doesn't need to be Tony Blair to win the keys to number 10. Keir Starmer, to become Prime Minister, would need to win 326 constituencies at the next general election. Well, actually, and, he, and he's not Tony Blair. <laughs> but actually less, though, because the Tories can't build a, go- the Tories can't well, build a coalition and Labour can. You know? Yeah, the question this week has sort of moved on to, the, the question Keir Starmer was asked multiple times in a round of broadcast interviews this week is, will you join a coalition with the Liberal Democrats? They've ruled out a coalition with uh, the the SNP, but that question really is now starting to come around. Is okay, if Labour don't reach the 326 threshold, would there be, you know, the possibility there for them to form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and however many seats they may have at the next general election? As I said before, the local elections last week did suggest that, as Henry pointed out, in different parts of the country, the Conservatives are losing voters for different reasons and it's whether those sort of hemorrhages add up enough or whether people are inclined enough to vote for 
Keir Starmer. Yeah. Ultimately, is it going to be the I don't knows that hold the key at the next general election and the people that stay home? Yeah, Henry, just finally, the final word to you then. Obviously, I guess part of the, the danger for the Conservatives is that if this idea about whether Labour will go into coalition takes hold, in a sense, it's also what it's saying is that the Conservatives aren't going to win a, a majority. You know, do you think that the polls will close enough? There is a chance for the Tories to, to turn it around. And if so, are they pursuing the right strategy to be able to do so? I mean, they might. Obviously, I think we need the, the usual financial services um, proviso that past performance is not a prediction of future performance, but they tend to narrow before a general election. And you know, it's been an extraordinarily hard few years. It might be that just a return to something more closely resembling normalcy produces some kind of result for which the government can take credit. But of course, again, in the late 90s, the Tories were delivering, well, the mid-90s, the Tories under Ken Clark were delivering, and John Major were delivering really strong economic growth. And it wasn't enough if the public make their mind up just at a really deep level that this government is exhausted and is not delivering for them. And so I think what Rishi Sunak needs to desperately do is try and avoid that sense of Finder regime from taking hold. And that will be very difficult for him to do because his MPs are divided. The government doesn't appear to be able to deliver much of anything policy-wise despite its majority. And basic competence, which fair enough, the Prime Minister is right to prioritise that after the trust interregnum, is not going to be enough to win an election, I don't think. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my guests, James Sunnell and Henry Hill, as well as my colleague, Caitlin Doherty. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.